For ALS patients, the simple act of breathing is one of the greatest daily challenges. What cutting-edge treatments can help ALS patients breathe easier? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss breathing assistance for ALS patients is Dr. Raymond Anders, Associate Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio, and he is also Director of the Minimally Invasive Surgery at the University Hospitals at Case Western Medical Center. Dr. Anders, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me on your show. So start off by giving us uh, sort of a refresher on the anatomy and physiology of breathing. Well, thank you. And this has been uh, an active part of our research here for over a decade. What we know about breathing is that you have to have an intact muscle, the diaphragm. You have to have a nerve, the phrenic nerve, going to that diaphragm. You have to have the motor neurons, the phrenic motor neurons in C3, 4, and 5 that will help fire the nerve and the muscle for contraction. Again, if the diaphragm contracts, we're breathing. We also know that the, the phrenic motor neurons have some upper motor neuron signals coming from our cerebral cortex where we can take a deep breath with our diaphragm. But we also have a, a different nighttime breathing system with our pre complex and the special somatic nuclei in our brainstem that controls our nighttime breathing. And also during the daytime, most of us don't think about breathing as opposed to an ALS patient, because as we all know, ALS patients eventually die because they can't breathe. 95% of ALS patients die from lack of respiration. So most of us don't think about breathing, but ALS patients are constantly thinking about, when am I going to lose my ability to breathe? So what goes wrong specifically in the breathing of ALS patients? And take us sort of from the very beginning when it starts and to the end when they're no longer able to breathe at all. In ALS, we know that patients are, are losing their motor neurons throughout their, from their initial diagnosis until their death. They lose anywhere of what we call the force vital capacity of how much you're breathing. About 1% to 3% of that force vital capacity is lost every month. So on most ALS patients, you can almost graph them until they get to such a low force vital capacity that they need augmentative breathing techniques such as non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and also called BiPAP or invasive ventilation through a tracheostomy. As they lose those motor neurons, they, they lose the ability to breathe, uh, both our accessory muscles, our ability to cough, and also our diaphragm. The diaphragm, obviously, is the key muscle for breathing because, as we've shown in our, all of our spinal cord patients that we've implanted with the diaphragm pacing system, is that we can you know, provide respiration just by the diaphragm alone. When we began this project in ALS, our goal was actually just to help maintain the strength of the muscle that was left. Obviously, as we've been doing this trial up to 140 patients worldwide, we've actually identified a lot of other beneficial effects of what we call pacing the diaphragm. So how early in the ALS disease process do the breathing issues come up? And typically, how long is the actual course for the average patient? Most patients with ALS, from initial symptom presentation to actually death, is anywhere between three to five years. Many times it takes a little while to diagnose the ALS, so it can actually be a much shorter time period from diagnosis to death. What we know is that our our breathing system is, is tremendous. Obviously, as you develop ALS, your ability to walk, move is less, so your need for taking a deep breath is less. What we find out, though, is that patients are progressively losing their ability to breathe, but because we have such additional muscles, most of us, for quiet breathing, are only using 30% of our diaphragm for maintaining ventilation. So you actually have to lose a fair amount of your ability to breathe before you actually have some symptoms. We've all seen patients that initially present with an elevated uh, diaphragm on a chest x-ray, and they've lost with an idiopathic phrenic nerve paralysis one diaphragm, and they may have just said, you know, I occasionally have been getting short of breath, and they've lost one full diaphragm 
long-term function. Same thing with ALS patients. By the time we diagnosis and start doing studies, we found that many of them have lost up to 30 to 50% of their ability to have ventilation. So their force level capacity has already dropped down to 70 or 50% of their predicted values. So what treatments have been tried in the past and how successful were they? The only approved, FDA-approved treatment for ALS is a drug called Rilutec, which out of the, the French studies uh, lengthened life anywhere between three to six months. And that's just lengthening lifetime. BiPAP, or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, is used to augment their respiration. But we all know that using positive pressure ventilation or BiPAP is sometimes very difficult on patients with bulbar symptoms. 30% of ALS patients present with some bulbar symptoms where they have difficulty swallowing, difficulty talking, and that becomes much more difficult to tolerate the mask. Overall, BiPAP is only tolerated by anywhere between 10 to 40% of patients. It's just difficult to tolerate that mask when you have ALS. BiPAP has been shown to help them ventilate and breathe uh, for a longer period of time. Part of our research has shown recently, though, that um, a New England Journal article that came out in March showed that just one night of being on positive pressure ventilation, if your diaphragm is not working, you start converting from type 1 muscle, the slow twitch muscle fiber, to type 2B muscle fiber. So we now have shown some evidence in our ALS patient populations that we're studying that that BiPAP actually does the same thing. It actually weakens the diaphragm a little bit more. It's been proven to be effective, though, but as we know in most ALS patients, once they start using some positive pressure ventilation, be it non-invasive or you know, invasive ventilation, they become more and more dependent on it. And that's really been the only therapies out there for ALS in this orphan disease. And for the patients that are on positive pressure oxygen, does that actually lengthen life and does it improve quality of life at all? Positive pressure ventilation does improve the length of life. It also helps with the sleep dysfunction. Something that we've also shown with our research is that many of our ALS patients have developed central sleep apnea, similar to the Andine's curse that we see in children. You know, Andine being the ancient German mythological god that you know, married a river nymph and the other gods punished him. If he ever fell asleep with her, he'd die. So we know in that disease process is that um, the pre-bots complex is affected in those children. And we've now identified in ALS that they've also developed central sleep apnea. And so if they have difficulty sleeping, we all know that you know, you know, BiPAP and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation works very well in helping those patients with central sleep apnea. Diaphragm pacing, part of our research that we've been doing, we've now shown also very positively affects that by allowing natural diaphragm breathing at night. We no longer have the signals to fire and take a regular breath. So these patients basically just stop breathing at night. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss breathing assistance for ALS patients is Dr. Raymond Anders, Associate Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery at University Hospital's Case Western Medical Center. So tell us about the diaphragm pacing system. What is it? How long has it been around, and how are you using it? Well, thank you. And it's interesting. We began this whole system for spinal cord injured patients. Obviously, a high tetraplegic patient, a C2 injury has lost control of their diaphragm. And we developed through Case Western Reserve and our Functional Electrical Stimulation Group a technique that I've been part of this process for over 10 years now, where we actually implant electrodes on the diaphragm laparoscopically. That's how a minimally invasive surgeon got involved with this. What I do is laparoscopic surgery. So we implant electrodes on the diaphragm after finding out the right spot for implanting these electrodes. We then stimulate the diaphragm and get a breath. 
what we found is that it actually worked extremely well in spinal cord injured patients. Our first successful patient on our first try was Christopher Reeve, Superman. Uh, we implanted him in 2003, and we actually got him off the ventilator until his untimely demise from other reasons. Our first patient we ever implanted with the diaphragm pacing system was implanted in the year 2000, and he's been using our system for eight straight years for every breath, 12 times a minute, 24 hours a day. Several years ago, we began looking at another group of patients where I had a little interest in an ALS. ALS being a different disease where they're losing motor neurons, we didn't know if we could actually uh, have a beneficial effect. So we initially began a pilot trial in 2004, and we subsequently have now just completed our long-term pivotal trial in the United States for patients, which included 100 patients uh, at such sites as Johns Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, uh, Stanford, and uh, several other sites around the United States, along with several European sites. Uh, we're still looking at that data, but we've shown in our initial pilot data and some of our earlier implanted data that we're having a significant effect on survival on patients with ALS by maintaining both those motor neurons and maintaining diaphragm strength. So who invented this treatment in the first place? Where did the idea come from? I've actually been around with it since the, the beginning of it. It's very interesting is that it was developed by a group of engineers at Case and myself, and the ALS project was really turned over completely to myself. My mentor was Tom Mortimer, a, a, a great electrical engineer at Case Western Reserve, and he's kind of, since his semi-retirement, there's all these great professors, they never completely ever retire, um, has been kind of helping to guide the project still. But it was all really invented right here, and, and we subsequently founded the company that actually provides the device also. And when you were thinking about this, what prompted you to say, hey, I wonder if we can electrically stimulate the diaphragm to control breathing? When did those ideas first come up? It's interesting. Tom Mortimer had looked at the growth of minimally invasive surgery laparoscopic. If you go back to what we call electrophrenic respiration, it has been described for over 100 years. Somebody first identified that they could stimulate the phrenic nerve directly and make the diaphragm contract. When electricity was invented, people started looking at ways to, to breathe with that. Glenn and his group out of Yale worked on this in the 1960s. At the same time, cardiac pacemakers were initially being developed. That required direct phrenic nerve stimulation. And that system has been around for many years. For other disease processes besides spinal cord injured, which it was initially developed for, it would not make sense to risk injuring the nerve for patients such as ALS as opposed to direct muscle stimulation. So we kind of, in the ALS population, we're looking at trying to delay the need for a ventilator. It's interesting, as we looked at all of our research processes, we have replaced the ventilator for our spinal cord injured patients, delay the ventilator for our ALS patients. We also have research aspects for anybody on a ventilator right now, acutely in the ICU, where we just decrease the time on a ventilator. What are some of the challenges for ALS patients? Are they all capable of using this, or are there some screening issues, and how long does it typically last and work? Now, ALS patients have an unfortunate disease. Right now, we have very little treatment options for them. Our data looks extremely well, and right now, our ALS patients in the United States are kind of in a holding pattern until we finish uh, our final accrual for our 100 patients that right now, nobody in the United States is being implanted for this. You know, as, as we look at our patient population, there's such groups that the FDA has in what we call uh, humanitarian use devices, which is less than 4,000 patients a year new patients a year, but ALS is just over that with a little over 5,000 patients a year. That's still a very small group of patients, so we can't use that avenue right now with the FDA for earlier access. Um, in Europe, it's actually fully approved, so it's become a, a kind of a standard of care for certain patients. And again, what we know about ALS is if you have a very rapidly progressing disease and you're elderly, 
um, life extension becomes much more difficult. What we found in our patients is that we can keep them alive without the need for a ventilator, but you still lose all other muscle control. And really what we're finding in our long-term patient studies now is that we're changing the way that patients die. Previously, obviously, if you read Tuesdays with Maury, um, he died when he could no longer breathe. He was still communicating, though. What we've now found is that we've taken away that death from lack of respiration, but patients still use their ability to communicate. We now have our patients kind of making these choices in in their life that they want to actually stop pacing when they can't communicate because, as we all know, it's very difficult to maintain your life if you can't communicate. Again, that brings into a lot of different ethics that we we never really thought we'd be facing because our results are, are doing a lot better than we initially thought of when we started this process. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Raymond Anders. We've been discussing breathing assistance for ALS patients. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit us at www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.